Hey, uh, do you love the John and Jill Stokes family yet? This is the family we've been watching uh, every Sunday for the last couple of weeks, uh, or last uh, few weeks, actually. I'm so grateful for this family, for John and Jill, and for their two precious daughters uh, who allowed our video team to just sort of invade their life for a day and go into their home and, and uh, video them getting out of bed and going through their day together. And they allowed us to sort of have a, a sneak view, to sort of come alongside and, and participate with them uh, in their need to have a consistent habit of prayer in their lives as a family. And after watching them for these last few weeks, I really feel like uh, they're old friends, though I've never met them. They live in Mills River, and uh, they're not a part of our church, but they did such a great job allowing us to do that, and I really feel like they've become old friends by now. Uh, over these weeks, we have joined with them in their need, the same need that all of us have, to cultivate this life of prayer. And over the weeks, we have been discovering the reasons why we ought to pray. Let me remind you of the three that we've discovered so far, then we'll deal with the last one today. A few weeks ago, we learned that we should pray because, do you remember? We've been invited to pray. That's reason number one. If I had no earthly reason to pray at all, if I had no material needs, no physical needs, no family needs, if there was no reason for me to pray in terms of my own neediness, here's one reason I should pray. God Almighty has invited me to come into his presence, and that's enough reason. We studied Psalm 95, where we're commanded and encouraged and invited to come before his presence, to enter into his presence with thanksgiving. But we do have very real practical needs that we ought to pray about as well. And so we learned in week number two that we should pray because we can't make it on our own. We really can't. We studied Matthew 14 where Peter takes a few steps on the water after climbing out of that boat on the Sea of Galilee and then plunges screaming, Lord, save me. We learned that in the storms of life we can't make it on our own. Last week uh, we studied in Job chapter 1. Pastor Sullivan did an amazing job bringing the word last week, and our students on both campuses did. In fact, will you give them a round of applause on both campuses? Our students did such a great job last week. But we learned from Job chapter 1 that we should pray because we must influence the next generation. That's our kids that we're raising and our grandchildren that we're influencing. And, and even if we don't have kids, that next generation that we do have an influence with, that we must pray as Job did because there are others coming along behind us. And in the video that you've just watched, John and Jill uh, had a major decision to make in their lives. They, they had a life-altering decision that they must face. And so they needed to pray because they needed guidance. Why do we pray? Here's reason number four. We pray because in this life we need guidance. We need direction. And uh, we need for the Lord to, to give us understanding uh, in the uncertainties of life. And so it was with Daniel. And so we're going to learn from Daniel as we read in Daniel chapter number 9. Now, today we're going to read the entire chapter. If y'all are listening, I want you to shout amen. There's 27 verses in this chapter. Are you up to it? 
27 verses. And so we're going to read beginning in verse number 1. You follow along. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting and with sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession. And I said in my prayer, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned. And we have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Verse 5 details sins of commission. These are the things we have done. Verse 6, neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Verse number 6 details sins of omission. Verse 5, these are the things we have done that we shouldn't have. Verse 6, these are the things that we have not done that we should have. Verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces or shame as at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and unto all of the people of Israel, those that are near and those that are afar off, scattered into foreign lands, throughout all the countries where you have driven them. Shame belongs to us because of our trespasses that we have committed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face or shame, to our kings and to our princes and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belongs mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel has transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore, this curse is poured out upon us. The oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words, that is, God has confirmed his words, which he spake against us, against our judges, and that judged us by bringing upon us a great evil. For under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all of this evil has come upon us. Yet we did not make our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is a righteous God in all of his works which he does. And we obeyed not his voice. And now, O Lord our God, 
Thou that brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt, and with a mighty hand you have gotten thee renown, as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. Now I might stop at verse 15 and mention that this is where in Daniel's prayer, the prayer shifts. Because beginning in verse number 3, verse 4, when he begins his prayer, it is a very transparent prayer of confession. And notice that Daniel is not saying it's them, it's him, it's her. He's saying it's us. It's all of us. It's our princes, our kings, our judges. It's the people who are here and the people who have been driven abroad. All of us are responsible. We have sins, sins of omission, sins of commission. You sent your word to us. You warned us, but we ignored it. And now, God, we are enduring the hardship that we are under. That's all through verse number 15. Now in verse 16, his prayer becomes one of supplication, one of, oh God, would you now resolve the situation? Verse number 16, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from the city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. Because of our sins and for our iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all that are about us. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications and cause your face to shine upon thy sanctuary. That's the temple laying in ruins. Cause your face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open your eyes and behold our desolations in the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications, our requests before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do or help. Do not wait. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, and for the city and thy people that are called by thy name. And while I was praying, prayer ends in verse 19. And while I was praying, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord, uh, before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God, Jerusalem. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation or the evening sacrifice. You imagine being deep in prayer and the angel touches you? Somebody say amen. amen. It was on a Monday, somebody. <laughs> and he informed me, Gabriel informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, the commandment came forth, and I am come now to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, that's the Jewish people, and upon thy holy city, that's Jerusalem, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins 
and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy king. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street of Jerusalem shall be built again. The wall of Jerusalem will be rebuilt even in troublesome times. And after 62 weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations have been determined. And he, that is the prince that shall come, mentioned in verse 26, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of that week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of the abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that which is determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. And all God's people said, Amen. Don't you love God's word? I mean, I could just say, you're dismissed. Let's go home. And you might say, well, I heard God's word this morning, but I'm not sure what all of it meant. So let's talk about it. I want you to make uh, this note somewhere in your notes. Let's learn with Daniel the value of this truth. Let's, Let's write it down. We need God's guidance in the dark. And this is the reason we need to pray. We need God's guidance in the dark. If you have ever flown from the east coast of the United States, let's say from JFK or Newark International Airport, if you've ever gotten on a jet and flown uh, from uh, the east coast of the United States to, say, London or anywhere in Europe or beyond, and if you've done this particularly at night, you recognize the need for a guidance system. Look at this map that they're going to put up on the screen, this flight map, which kind of gives the picture of what that looks like. An airplane filled with three or 400 people hurtling through the darkness over open ocean for 3,500 miles from the furthest point on the east coast of the United States to the nearest point on the most western coast of Europe, 3,500 miles. It would be the equivalent of flying across the continental United States and then halfway back again. And the entire time, you're over open ocean. There are no landmarks to follow. You're speeding through the darkness. And even if every system on that airplane is operating at perfection, it must still have a guidance system because that guidance system is the only way that pilot knows how and where to fly that airplane. Because if he or the autopilot system is not right on point, then a little bit, a few degrees off will put him in an entirely different landing destination. If he were to get off very far, he would head north and end up too far north to have a place to land, he could end up flying south and ending up on the Horn of Africa or even further out in the ocean, and he would run out of fuel and everybody on board would die. There must be a guidance system. 
And sometimes this is what life feels like. Like we are hurtling through the darkness, we're pressing on through life, but we're not exactly sure where it's all going to end up, how it's all going to unfold, and what we need as we move through the darkness, through the uncertainty, is we need God's guidance system. And so this is what Daniel prays for. God, give me guidance in the darkness. Let's learn some things about Daniel and the darkness that he was facing. Let me give you a little bit of biographical information for those of you who aren't familiar with Daniel in the Old Testament. The first thing I would tell you about Daniel is that he was a prophet among the Jewish people, so named by Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 24, I think verse number 15, Jesus calls Daniel a prophet. But Daniel was not actually a prophet in the typical sense that you might think of a prophet like Ezekiel or or Isaiah, uh, some of the minor prophets. Daniel was, in the first place, in the earlier stages of his life, he was a young nobleman who lived in Jerusalem. Um, Daniel was quite possibly a prince uh, from a royal family. He was living in Jerusalem, not not prophesying, just living the royal life and in, in the lineage of the royal family. And in 585 or thereabouts, around 585 BC, everything in Daniel's life changed. Everything. There was a great king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He was the emperor of the world, essentially, the greatest empire in the world at the time, the Babylonian Empire. And In 585 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar had already besieged the city of Jerusalem, and in that year, he invaded the city of Jerusalem and conquered it. He burned the city of Jerusalem to the ground. He destroyed the temple of God, which stood in Jerusalem. Most of the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem were slaughtered, and those who were not killed, namely those of a royal lineage, those that might be productive in the Babylonian empire, were loaded up onto carts and they were shipped over to Babylon where they began to live a new life as servants in the Babylonian empire. This is what happened to Daniel. Along with some of his uh, friends, he was exiled to Babylon. Now, if you read the book of Daniel, which many of you have, you know that Daniel then in Babylon prospers. And and though he is not living uh, in his homeland and though he is not living as a free man, he is becoming a great leader uh, in the land of Babylon. And during those days in Babylon, God raised him up to be a prophet to instruct his people under the captivity. Now, that's Daniel's experience. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, you have one of these beautiful verses in the Bible which give you a time stamp. It's, a, it's, like, it's like somebody came along with a time stamp and said, this is when this is happening. Look at it. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 says, In the first year of Darius, who was the son of Ahasuerus, in the first year that he was made to rule over the province of the Chaldeans, 
Now, thankfully, we know in history when this was. It was the year that Cyrus the Great, the Persian king, conquered the Babylonian Empire. We can mark it, 539 B.C. That's exactly when it was. So in 539 B.C. is when these events are being recorded. Now do the math. In 585 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon conquer Judah and Jerusalem, take the people captive. 585. In chapter number 9, 539 B.C. has arrived. And if you do the math, they have been, when you come to chapter 9, they have been in captivity for 46 years. Essentially, a half century. About almost 50 years, they have been living in bondage. Think about it. For 50 years, the city of Jerusalem has been a, a laughing stock to everyone who walks by. Tumbleweeds rolling through, weeds growing up, strangers, vagabonds, foreigners passing through, makeshift homes along the street, the remaining houses from the days of her glory now inhabited by, by uh, those who have just sort of taken up housing there. For nearly 50 years, the temple of God that had stood on Mount Moriah as a, as a declaration of the glory of God Almighty and a house of prayer for all the nations, now for 50 years has been lying in absolute rubble. The glory of God departed from it. For almost 50 years, the children of the Jewish people have been born, not in freedom, but in captivity. Not with God as their king, but with a Babylonian ruler as their king, and now a Persian ruler. Pagans as their kings. And all of their joy had just drained out of their lives. In fact, this joyless, desperate, dark situation is expressed perhaps nowhere more emphatically than in, in Psalm 137. Why don't you turn there quickly? Go to Psalm 137. I really want you to see this. This, this psalm expresses the collective darkness of their soul. Psalm 137 says in verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon, when we were taken captive, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Zion, just another name for Israel. You've heard the phrase of the word Zionism. What you have in Psalm 137 is the first cry of Zionism. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For they that carried us away captive, the Babylonians, required of us a song. They that wasted us, required of us mirth or joy. They said to us, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. Come on, you people. Sing those songs you used to sing when life was so good. Sing about the joy of your God. Sing about the power of your God. Tell us how wonderful your God is, that those songs you used to sing in the temple. Sing us one of those songs. Listen to verse 4. How shall we sing the Lord's song? In a strange land. And then they begin to lament. Verse 5, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, 
Let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, O Jerusalem, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Do you hear the weeping and the lamenting? This is the dark day in which Daniel is living. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever felt like, do you feel like now that some circumstance has, has dragged you into a land where you would have never chosen to live? It's put you in a situation that you didn't create and you didn't choose, but here you are. And you have hanged your harp up because there's no reason to sing. You've hanged your harp up because there's no joy left, no mirth that can come flooding out of your heart. It's a dark place. And that's where Daniel is. Now, in verse number one, we learn that he's been in captivity, he and his people, for 46 years. Now look at verse number two. I'm back in Daniel 9. Verse number two. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books... The number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, I understood the number of years that God would accomplish in Jerusalem, and that year, that number is 70 years that he would accomplish in the desolations of Jerusalem. Everybody look up here for a second. Watch this. Daniel's been in captivity for, for 46 years, and now already growing older, becoming an old man, now He's reading through the book of Jeremiah, the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah. And he comes across Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 10. Now, of course, Daniel didn't turn to Jeremiah 25, 10. It wasn't divided in chapter and verse at that time. But the reference is Jeremiah 25, 10. And this is what he reads. Moreover, God speaking, I will take from them, the Jewish people, the voice of mirth. I will take from them the voice of gladness. I will take from them the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the sound of millstones, that is commerce, and the light of the candle. In other words, in Jeremiah 25, 10, through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, judgment is coming. I'm going to silence life in Jerusalem. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, the people are going to be exiled out of Jerusalem. How long will this last? Jeremiah 25, 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and this nation shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And Daniel reads it. And he says, 585 to the first year of Darius, it's been 46 years. And Jeremiah was, re was revealed to Jeremiah by God that this captivity would last for 70 years. And he suddenly understands I have 26 years, or 24 years left in captivity. Now, Daniel will only live another three or so years. So what happens in this verse, verse number two, is that it becomes clear that for Daniel, it's never going to get better. That he's never going to see his beloved Jerusalem again. That the temple is never going to be rebuilt in his lifetime and he is never going to return to that city. And so he, in the darkness and the uncertainty of what the next 24 years would hold, he prayed. And he prayed for understanding. And he prayed for guidance. 
And his prayer is instructive to us. So let's talk about it. How to pray for guidance. You may say, it's what I need in my life right now. I need for God to give me some guidance and and what's happening in my family. I, I need for God to help me through the darkness of what's happening with my physical condition, my health, my diagnosis. I, I need for God to give me some guidance on how these things are going to unfold in, in my marriage relationship. I, I need for God to give me some guidance in a dark season of my life. How do we pray for guidance? Well, the first thing that I think we can learn from Daniel's prayer is to learn that the prayer of guidance seeks, jot this down, the prayer of guidance seeks the mind, the mind of God. Another way to say that would be that the prayer for guidance asks, Lord, what are you accomplishing? Think about this with me. Lord, what are you accomplishing? Now, this is a dramatically different question than, God, what are you doing? It's a very different question. The first question, what are you accomplishing, is a question of expectation. The latter question, God, what are you doing, is an accusation. When I say, God, what are you doing, it's with a finger pointed most often. God, what are you up to? What, I, what are you doing to me? Whereas the question of God, what are you accomplishing, is a statement of faith. God, I know you're doing something beautiful. I want to understand what it is. The latter question is demanding. God, what are you doing? I demand an answer. When we say, God, what are you accomplishing, it's a form of surrendering. When we say, what are you doing, it's based in fear. When we say, what are you accomplishing, it's filled with faith. You see, the, the prayer for guidance wants to know the mind of God. God, what are you accomplishing? In verse number two, Daniel understands that God is accomplishing something. God is going to take 70 years, verse two says, to accomplish his work. The word accomplish means to, or means to fill up or to complete. It's going to take 70 years for God to complete the work that he's doing. And while Daniel doesn't like that they've been in captivity for 46 years and he's not excited that they're going to be in captivity for another 24 years. He at least knows that God has an end game in mind, that that what's happening is not random, that God hasn't folded his arms and turned his head and now the empires of the world are just sweeping over the Jewish people. No, God is doing something and he's accomplishing a very intentional purpose. And once he knows that, He sets his face. Look at verse number three. When I understood that God was going to take 70 years to accomplish this thing, whatever it was, he didn't know what it was, but he knew that it would be accomplished in 70 years. In verse three, he says, now I want to know what you're doing, what you're accomplishing. So verse three, I set my face unto the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and with ashes. He set his face. Say, okay, God, 70 years. Now, in these years, what are you going to do? And that initiates the prayer that we read, the entire thing, beginning in verse number four. It goes down through verse number 20. He's praying, he's praying, he's praying. And then you come to verse number 22. And in verse number 22, the angel Gabriel, having arrived in answer to Daniel's 
prayer, he shows up to meet with Daniel to do something very intentional. Now, before we read verse 22, if y'all are with me on both campuses, shout amen. Now, watch this. Daniel's He's confused. He doesn't have the answers. It's dark. He's like that airplane hurtling through the darkness. 46 years have passed. It's just darkness. Now, God, what are you going to do? What, what are you accomplishing? He, he prays to, to have some understanding. Watch what happens in verse number 22. Gabriel shows up and he informed me. Now, the word informed means that Gabriel showed up to bring awareness to me. Gabriel showed up to help me to be able to discern what God is doing. That's what informed means. He talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. The word skill means insight. I want to show you what I'm accomplishing. I want you to have wisdom in what I'm doing. Verse number 23, at the beginning of your supplication, and the commandment came forth, and now I am come to show thee, for you're greatly beloved, therefore, I want you to understand the matter and I want you to consider the vision. Now here, this is encouraging. So Daniel doesn't look up at God, point his finger and say, what are you doing to us? Daniel says, God, I know you've got a purpose. What is it that you're accomplishing? And in answer to that prayer for guidance, Gabriel shows up and says, now I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give you some insight, some wisdom, some skill, some understanding and exactly what it is that God is accomplishing in these 70 years. Now, if you want to know what it is God was going to accomplish in those uh, those 70 years, look with me at verse number 24. Verse 24, he says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city, Jerusalem. Now, in verse number 2, 70 years have been determined. Then in answer to the prayer, he says in verse number 24, 70 weeks have been determined. Now, we're going to get into this in some detail beginning in two weeks on September 22nd when we get into our study in Revelation. But I just want you to watch what he says he's going to do in this time period that's denoted as 70 weeks, verse 24. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city, Jerusalem. Here's what I'm going to do. Number one, he says, I'm going to finish transgression and bring about an end of all sin. If you think that's a pretty good agenda, say amen. God, if you're going to bring about an end of sin... This is a good accomplishment. Secondly, I'm going to make reconciliation for iniquity. So rebellion and sin began in the garden. He says, I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to finish it. And not only am I going to bring an end to it, he says in verse number 24, I'm then going to make reconciliation for those who have committed those sins and iniquities. I'm going to make reconciliation for iniquity. Thirdly, he says, I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness. I'm going to replace a world filled with sin and iniquity by reconciling those who trust me and bringing in a kingdom of righteousness. Then I'm going to finish up, seal up all of the prophecies. And finally, verse number 24, I'm going to anoint the most holy king. Now, I think you would agree with me That God is saying to Daniel, hey Daniel, you're asking me what I'm accomplishing. I'm doing more than you could ever imagine that I'm doing. Do you agree? Amen? Daniel's like, you're really doing all that? I just thought you were doing something little among this little Jewish nation in this little city of Jerusalem. God goes, I'm going to change the world. I'm absolutely doing more than you could imagine. Here's what I want you to hear me say. 
That if you are going through a dark season, if you are, or if you are needing guidance through a particular situation, I don't know what all God is doing in your life, but because I know the nature of our God, I promise you, His outcomes are greater than you could ever imagine them to be. He is doing more. I don't know what it is, but I know that you can trust that he is doing more than you think he is doing. When we, when we understand that we need guidance, we ask him for his mind. God, what are you accomplishing? What is your purpose in this? Secondly, the prayer for guidance not only seeks the mind of God, but secondly, the prayer for guidance seeks the unchanging truth. Prayer for guidance seeks the unchanging truth. In other words, it affirms what never changes. The prayer for guidance affirms what never changes. Um, I don't know if it's possible to describe how, beyond what I've already done, and, and really we can take all day really talking about all the different parts of it, to describe how that everything in Daniel's life had turned upside down. I mean, everything. Nothing in his life had turned out the way that he thought it would. Nothing in his life had turned out the way that he had ever hoped or imagined that it would. It's all upside down. And now he learns in chapter 9, verse number 2, that it's not going to get any better during his lifetime. You know, I had a, had a fellow say to me once in a particular situation that, that I was going through. He said to me, for in, in the fresh raw kind of moment of this. He said, you need to trust God, but you need to know you may not live to see it resolved. And I said verbally to him, shut up. I did. Because my expectation was it's going to be resolved right away. And here's the thing. He, Daniel learns he's not going to live to see this thing fixed. It's not going to get any better during his lifetime. But even though his life has been turned upside down, even though everything has changed in his life, there were some things that had not changed at all. And the prayer for guidance doesn't camp in what has changed. It focuses on what has not changed. And this is what Daniel does in his prayer. First of all, he affirmed that God is always right. If you believe that, say amen. amen. God is always right right. It means God makes no mistakes. This is verse number seven. Daniel affirms it. Oh Lord, righteousness. That means rightness. It means you're never wrong. Righteousness belongs to you. Imagine. Here's a guy whose family has been murdered by an invading empire. His home has been destroyed. He's been exiled to a foreign country. He's been given a new name, a new culture. He's living under a pagan empire. His temple has been destroyed. And he looks at God and he says, in the midst of my darkness, you never make mistakes. That's the prayer that seeks the guidance of God. The prayer that says, God, what are you doing? This is wrong, doesn't seek the guidance of God. It seeks the submission of God to our desires and our will. But the prayer for guidance says, I, I, I may not understand fully what you're doing, but I know you're not doing anything wrong. I know you're right. When we pray for guidance, we pray affirming what is truth that never changes. Secondly, 
he affirmed that God is always good. Verse number nine, not only is God right, because you can be right and unkind, but in verse number nine, he says, God, not only are you right, but God, you're kind. Verse nine, to the Lord our God belongs mercies and forgivenesses. Any multiple sinners in the room glad these are plurals? Not mercy once and forgiveness once, but mercies and, and, and forgivenesses, even though we have rebelled against him. Loved ones, when you need guidance, just know this. When you ask God to guide you, don't make demands of him, but rather affirm what is true about him. He's good and he's right every single time. Here's the third and final thing. It is that the prayer for guidance seeks personal transformation. God is always doing more than we think he can do, but part of what God is doing is that he's transforming our lives. And so when we pray for, for guidance, as Daniel did, we're asking God, we're acknowledging to God that we're broken and we're needy, and we're asking him to transform us. Verse 5, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedly, we have rebelled by departing from your precepts and your judgments. We didn't hearken unto your servants, the prophets, even though they spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers. They spoke to all of us. And God, we didn't listen and we rebelled. And we've trespassed against you. See, what Daniel is saying is, God, I know you're right, and I know you're good, and I understand now that this captivity still has a, a quarter of a century to go. And he wouldn't have known that he wasn't going to live to that. I mean, that would have made him a really old man, but maybe he, he wouldn't have known that he wouldn't live those 26 more years. But he didn't, he didn't know how that was going to begin to unfold until that 70-year mark was hit. And so he just said, God, I... I know everything in my life has changed, but I know you're right and I know you're good and I know that the person that needs to be transformed in this is not you, it's me. And so when we pray for guidance, we ask, what do I need to learn in this time of uncertainty? How do I need to hear and obey God more fully in this time of darkness? And how can I most glorify God in this circumstance. So, if you're sick, then I think as you pray for guidance through the sickness, it would be wise to ask, God, what are you accomplishing through this diagnosis? God, what are you accomplishing through this sickness? And what might I learn and how might you use this in my life for your glory? And you know what I think would be a really healthy thing for you to do would be to say, God, when my health changed, what didn't change? My standing with you didn't change. Your power didn't change. Your plan for my life didn't change. What stayed the same when my health changed? If you're in a broken marriage, what began as picket fences and Sweet Valentine's cards and roses every birthday now has become nothing but brokenness and loneliness. Then as you ask God to give you guidance in that dark and new situation, you should ask, how can God use me in this new normal? This is my new normal. This is, maybe you say I wouldn't have chosen it, but this is where I'm living now. So God, what are you doing in me in this? And how can I most glorify you in this new normal?
And God, when my marital status changed, what didn't change? There's some things that didn't change. I'm still who I am in you. Your mercies are still new every morning. You've still got a plan that you're working out in my life. And I want to know and affirm those things that don't change. If you're looking for a new job, you're wondering, should I, should I take the new position? God, what are you accomplishing in this position? And if I were to change jobs, how could you use that for, you, for my glory or your glory? And if I kept my job, how could you use that for my glory or for your glory? And, and God, what won't change if my job title does or my location does? The fact is, whether it's illness or family or job or some other situation that has you frozen in fear, the prayer for guidance acknowledges God is good. God is right. He doesn't need to change. I need to change. And I want to know that he's accomplishing something and just surrender to what it is he's accomplishing and be his partner in it. Can I give you something to jot down at the end as we close? It's just to say that when we're in the dark, I need to say I will seek God's guidance to know what is true in my circumstance and then act wisely based upon that knowledge. Verse two, he says, I want to understand. Verse number 22, Gabriel says, I've come to give you understanding and wisdom. Verse 24, God says, I'm doing something great. So when I'm in the darkness, I will seek what is true, what has not changed, and then based on that knowledge, I will act wisely to the glory of God. Daniel didn't live to see it. But at the 70th year, after Cyrus had been king for 26 years, God stirred the heart of Cyrus. And Cyrus said, who is there among the Jewish people living in my kingdom that would like to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild your city and your temple? And God raised up a remnant and sent them back. And in chapter number 9 of Daniel, verse 24, 25, God said, Daniel, the prayer that you're praying, do you remember in verse number 16 when he said, oh Lord, show your mercy, turn your anger, turn your fury from Jerusalem and restore Jerusalem? That was the prayer. When you come to verse number 25, God said, the day that I answer that prayer will start the time clock to my bringing ultimate redemption to the world, not just the Jewish people. He couldn't couldn't have imagined all that God was doing in those 70 years. But God had a great plan. And can we affirm together today and praise God that we may not know what he's doing in our lives, but praise God, he's got a good plan. Amen? Amen. Amen.